0: You have your Bibles this morning. Would you turn with me, please, to 2 Samuel chapter 12? 2 Samuel chapter 12. It is a longer text. Thank you, Chris, for helping me read our text uh, this morning. I find it very helpful to read the entire context. Um I trust the, uh, we, we got through the juicy stuff last week, right? You were waiting for that, chapter 11, but it's not over yet because you're, you've got to be wondering something has to happen here to David. I, I mean, really. I've entitled the message, Marvelous Grace. Marvelous Grace. We'll begin our reading. I'll read the first part here. 1 Samuel chapter 12. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. And he came to him and said to him, There were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children. It used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms, and it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die, and he shall restore the lamb fourfold, because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Nathan said to David, you are the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul and I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms and gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house. And I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this, of this son. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the son. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, The Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. Then Nathan went to his house.
1: And the Lord afflicted the child that Uriah's wife bore to David, and he became sick. David therefore sought God on behalf of the child. And David fasted and went in and lay all night on the ground. And the elders of his house stood beside him, to raise him from the ground, but he would not, nor did he eat food with them. On the seventh day, the child died, and the servants of David were afraid to tell him that the child was dead. For they said, behold, while the child was yet alive, we spoke to him, and he did not listen to us. How then, when we say to him, the child is dead, he may do himself some harm, but when David saw that that his servants were whispering together, David understood that the child was dead. And David said to his servants, Is the child dead? They said, He is dead. Then David arose from the earth, and washed and anointed himself, and changed his clothes. And he went into the house of the Lord and worshipped. He then went to his own house, and when he asked, they set food before him, and he ate. Then his servants asked, or said to him, what is this thing that you have done? You fasted and wept for the child while he was alive, but when the child died, you arose and ate food. He said, while the child was alive, I fasted and wept. For I said, who knows whether the Lord will be gracious to me, that the child may live. But now he is dead, why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he will not return to me. Then David comforted his wife Bathsheba and went into her and lay with her. And she bore a son, and he called his name Solomon. And the Lord loved him and sent a message by Nathan to the prophet. So he called his name Jodidiah because of the Lord.
0: Now, Joab fought against Rabbah of the Ammonites and took the royal city. And Joab sent messengers to David and said, I have fought against Rabbah. Moreover, I have taken the city of waters. Now then, gather the rest of the people together and encamp against the city and take it, lest I take the city and it be called by my name. So David gathered all the people together and went to Rabbah and fought against it and took it. He took the crown. Uh, of their king from his head the weight of it was a talent of gold and in it was a precious stone and it was placed on David's head and he brought out the spoil of the city a very great amount and he brought out the people who were in it and set them to labor with saws and iron picks and iron axes and made them toil at the brick kilns and thus he did to all the cities of the Ammonites then David and all the people returned to Jerusalem thank you Chris Remember the saying, "Don't get caught with your hand in the cookie jar." You remember that? Do you have a cookie jar at home, or do you have cookies in the package that they come in? We don't much have cookie jars anymore, but I think you understand the the nature of uh, the saying: "Don't get your hand caught in the cookie jar." I was often guilty of eating cookies when I was not allowed to eat cookies when I was younger. And now that I am older, I love to have cookies around the house. And my wife knows they are not good for me because I would eat the whole pack. And I consume them very quickly, and so she doesn't buy them as much. And it doesn't really make me happy, but my wife is looking out for me. That's a good thing, right? It's a very good thing. If we are doing something we should not be doing... Do we not have an internal dread of getting caught or getting found out? The guilt is undeniable. Perhaps we know no one is around, and yet we still look around like someone's around. Sometimes we get caught red-handed. You know what that refers to, right? When you have the evidence of red or blood flowing down your hand, you're caught red-handed. You've heard that expression. We are caught with evidence on our hands or chocolate in our, on our mouths from the chocolate chips. Have you seen a mom ask a child, Did you eat these cookies? And the child says, No. No. And then you look at the child and the child's mouth is filled with crumbs and chocolate chips and, and, and their hand is covered with chocolate. I, I think you were, you were caught. You were caught. Our natural inclination is to hope that we never get caught. Isn't our natural inclination to, to, to hope that we get away with it? That's David here. There is guilt for many months of his sin. He was not caught red-handed by men, but he sure was by God. Now, we often think of getting caught as something to dread, and in one sense, rightly so. But let me ask you this. Do you see getting caught as God's marvelous grace to you? As believers, that's that's what we should see. But often we don't see it that way. For a Christian, getting caught is actually a very good thing. What evidence of marvelous grace. In chapter 11... David was in control. All the action is focused on David. But in chapter 12, though there will be judgment for David's sin, the main focus is not condemnation, rather, it's God and his grace. Chapter 12 is all about marvelous grace. God's something for nothing when we don't deserve anything. That's grace. God's something for nothing when we don't deserve anything. And so the first thing I want us to see here this morning is the demonstration of grace. The demonstration of God's grace. Verse 1. How does it begin? And the Lord sent Nathan to David. Think of that. Without these words... David's restoration is hopeless. Remember last week we said, don't think that God's silence means he doesn't know what's happening. Well, verse 1 should remove any doubt about God seeing and knowing. Does God know all things, children? Yes. Can anything be hidden from God? No, he sees it all, doesn't he? He sees it all. Yahweh never missed a thing. The word send, Selah, is used twelve times in chapter eleven. Everyone sins. David sins. Uh, Joab sins. Bathsheba sins. Now who sins? Yahweh. Yahweh sends. He has gone into action. God sends Nathan to David. Now, we have read the story, so we know what's going to happen. But we should stop for a moment and think about that first sentence. For that sentence shows us that God is a God of grace, and he's gracious to catch his children in their sin to expose their sin, even though it will be agonizing for them. Maybe we could call this a demonstration of agonizing grace. It sure is agonizing for us, isn't it? When we are confronted and exposed. In Psalm 32, verse 3, you have to know that for nine months... Verse 3 was true of David, when I kept silent, my bones wasted away. Through my groaning all day long, for day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. For nine How do we know about 9 months? Bathsheba comes in and says, I have conceived. And then we come to this text and what happens, the child is born. And the child dies. We'll talk more about that. So it's been been about nine or ten months. David has this guilt on his heart. His bones are wasting away. God's hand is heavy upon him. Conviction. God wouldn't let him forget it. Conviction burned in his heart. And it was eating him alive from the inside out. Unconfessed sin takes its toll on you, doesn't it? The way of a transgressor is hard. But are you not thankful for a demonstration of grace that the Lord sent Nathan to David? And we know what Nathan's going to do. That is grace. To get caught to finally be confronted, to finally confess your sin. And oh, what freedom there is when my sins are confessed and when they're under the blood. What a difference, what a joy, what a restoration it brings. But I want to tell you, unconfessed sin, it takes a toll on you. Do you have unconfessed sin in your life today? You might not not have gotten caught red-handed by men. But God knows. God sees. Are you thankful for his grace? I, I pray you're thankful for a message like this. For Nathan the prophet, for the Lord to send Nathan to David. 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 1 is very helpful for you. It's, it's a gracious text for you. Well, the second thing I want us to see here about grace is this. I want us to look at the creativity of grace. And this is in the second part of verse 1, all the way um, to uh, the first part of chapter 7. What a creative way to confront a king with his sin, or anyone for that matter. So Nathan comes to him. There were two men in a certain city. I mean, we don't even have reg where he says hello. Hello. Hey David, he starts in, there were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he bought, and he brought it up, and it grew up with him and his children. And notice it says, it used to, (laughs) it used to eat of his morsel. And drink of his cup. Why does he say used to? Because that rich man's gonna take it and kill it. But this this lamb used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup. and and lie in his arms and it was like a daughter to him and now there came a traveler to the rich man and the rich man was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest but he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the guest then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man and he said to Nathan as the Lord lives the man who has done this deserves to die and he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity It sounds like a simple case for the, for the main judge of the land. David is the supreme judge of the land and, at land. and so no doubt when David starts hearing about this case, he is very much interested in this situation. And David is already thinking about how he would judge the matter of the rich man taking the poor man's you. It's a great story. So we know the story. Maybe the poor man was at work. We don't know, but this rich man took his little ewe lamb that was so special to them. It was just like David took Bathsheba from Uriah the Hittite. The story struck a nerve. I mean, David seems to, I mean, he has a conniption. He swore to the Lord. And what did he say? That man deserves to die. Did you see that? That man deserves to die. And the lamb restored f- fourfold. David saw more than just the lamb taking from, from the poor man, he saw the heartless attitude behind it. The rich man had no pity, it was heartless. Nathan has David right where he wants him, right? Here comes the punchline. You are the man. What a creative way to tell David that the charade is over. I'm exposing it. We might think the John the Baptist approach is way better. Straight to the point. You brood of vipers! Who told you about the wrath that was to come? Just get them! Sick him, Johnny. But would David have, would he have reacted the same way if Nathan came to him like that? The Lord sent Nathan to David, and Nathan didn't say, David, you're a womanizer. You're an adulterer. You're a murderer. You, my friend, are in danger of hellfire. Your life is ruined. You have blown it. You liar and you cheat. Is that the way Nathan came to him? He came in quite a creative way, didn't he? He doesn't do that. He brings David right along into the truth and he does it with creativity. Even the approach to David is grace. Amen? Even that approach, that creative approach is grace. That man deserves to die. Nathan could have said that. David, you deserve death. But through his wit, he makes David see it and say it. Has a much, uh, a much greater impact, doesn't it? And actually, when it finally hits David, David is amazed that he's still alive. How could David still be standing? He should die for his sin. God is merciful. You see the grace in that? Alexander White, the 19th century Scottish Presbyterian, said this, Nathan's sword was within an inch of David's conscience before David knew that Nathan had a sword. You see, grace is not only marvelous and amazing, but grace is also smart. Grace is also savvy. Perhaps you know of a time when God creatively worked a situation to show you your sin, and He did it creatively. It wasn't just harsh in your face, you're a sinner, you're gonna die. It was more gracious. David was convicted out of his own mouth and I don't think David regretted his response. I think he was thankful that the truth was now out and his soul could be cleansed and restored. I really do. That that, that he could confess and get get right with God again. Your hand was heavy upon me. My, my bones wasted away, but now I'm confronted. He found mercy. So we, we, we see God's grace, his marvelous grace. The third thing I want us to see here is this the confrontation of grace. This is verses 7 through 12. David delivered his verdict. Now God delivers his. The Lord God says, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. And I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms and gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah with the sword, have taken his wife to be your wife, and killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house, because you despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah, the Hittite, to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes." Give them to your neighbor. He shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun, for you did it secretly. But I'll do this thing before all Israel and before the sun. These verses are massively important here. Matter of fact, they will drive the rest of the narrative in 2 Samuel. There are three sections of God's verdict to David. Number one, verses 7 to 8 is grace. Verses 9 is God's accusation to David. And then verses 10 to 12 is the punishment. So so let's look at this grace part here, verses 7 to 8. You see, sin appears more sinful when it's placed in the backdrop of grace. Like the rich man in the story, look how God showed his favor upon David. I anointed you as king, I delivered you from Saul. I I gave you Saul's house and the wives of his harem and the whole kingdom of Israel and Judah. And if that's not enough, I'd give you more. Such grace, isn't it? The point God is making is that David's sin makes no sense. David, you had it all. David is hardly deprived. He's not deprived of women. He had no need to take another man's wife. It's no wonder the why of verse 9. Did you see that? What the Lord says through the prophet. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? It doesn't make sense. Look what all I've given to you. That's what you said about the rich man in the little story. You're going, why would he take that lamb when he has his own? and Why would he take that guy's? See, David despised the word of the Lord. The text stresses in verse 10 that not only did David sin, but his sin destroyed others. He sinned against God and he ruined people. Bathsheba, Uriah, and a soon-to-be dead son. Sin has consequences, doesn't it? Verses 10 to 12 announce the judgment. The sword shall never depart from your your house. There won't be peace in your house. I will raise up evil out of your own house. Don't we see this when we come into more of David? It's coming. I will take away your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor. What you did in secret will have public consequences. This trouble in David's house is going to be the primary theme now from chapters 13 to 20. That's what you're going to see. Now, I call this the confrontation of grace. God doesn't sweep David's sin under the rug. The thing displeased the Lord. Now here, we have the double use of the word meaning despise or treat with contempt. Verses 9 and 10, this is the real sin. Why have you despised the word of the Lord? You have despised me. And didn't we see that in in Psalm 51? Against you and you only have I sinned. Now wait a minute. He sinned against Bathsheba. He sinned against Uriah. But ultimately he sinned against God. And that's where ultimately our sin, we are accountable to God. Ultimately He treated God's word as if it didn't matter. To despise the word is to to despise the one who gave it. You have despised me. God always sees the significance of sin, both in David and in us. If we understand this, we can see that confrontation really is grace. Correction comes from the heart of love. Is that not Hebrews 12? The Lord chastises us as sons and daughters. Isn't that what a father does to his children? I know it's not not fun at the time. It's painful. It hurts. But it's evidence of God's love for us. That confrontation of grace. If David, as a mortal sinner flies into a mortal rage when he hears about the rich man taking the poor man's lamb, how much more will God take sin seriously? If David offers serious judgment, don't you think God will bring serious judgment? Yes. It was his grace that sent Nathan to David, and it is his grace that will confront him. For us... Confrontation is not always a fun thing. I don't like confrontation. I don't look for confrontation. I don't like to do it when it must be done. But God, being perfectly holy and just, is not afraid to confront his children with their sin. Aren't you thankful for the confrontation of grace? Sometimes we think grace means niceness. Oh, David, it's okay. It's okay, brother. It's all right. We might be tempted to think if grace is not nice, then it's not grace. You know the hymn, Amazing Grace, John Newton? T'was grace that taught what? My heart to fear. T'was grace that taught my heart to fear. Grace confronts. Grace gets to the heart of sin, that we might fear the Lord, that we might not despise him. God seems very passionate about that, doesn't he? So don't emasculate grace. Oh, it's okay. Grace confronts. The fourth thing I want us to see here is this, is the miracle of grace. That's verses 13 and 14. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Nathan said to David, the Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. The law made clear what David deserved. What did David deserve? Death. But grace shows us what David received. He was forgiven and he would not die. Now, don't think that David got off easy, as you might be tempted to do. Just look at yourself and you know what your sins deserve. Don't point your finger at someone else. You have enough sin of your own. Amen? Well, let's look at David's confession. I have sinned against the Lord. Is that all you read? That's all I read. I have sinned against the Lord. Some might think that's not enough. Maybe you thought that when you read that. David, is that it? Is that all you're going to say? I have sinned against the Lord. His confession seems so simple and almost without heart. It might seem that God's letting him off easy. Is that all I got to do when I sin? And even when I sin big, is just say, I have sinned against the Lord. It'll be okay. But isn't that what confession is? It's confessing that I've sinned before the Lord. It's not a formula. I have sinned against the Lord. But there is a genuine heart in David. We know it is. When we turn to Psalm 51, you can't help but see that David's heart is broken over this. How does he start? Have mercy on me, O God. Have mercy. According to your steadfast love, blot out my transgression... Transgressions wash me thoroughly from my, from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. I was a sinner by birth. In sin did my mother conceive me. You delight in truth and the inward being. You teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me. Don't hide your face from me. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew in me a steadfast spirit. You see, David's heart was torn apart. He wasn't just saying a formula. And by the way, do you see how David differs from Saul in 1 Samuel 15? The text implies that the state of a man's heart is seen in his response to God's rebuke. Saul made excuses. David's heart crumbles in grief over his sin. To be a man after God's heart is not to be sinlessly perfect, but to submit to God's confronting grace. Let's look at David's assurance. Verse 13, the second part. The Lord has put away your sin. You shall not die. There is no reason for that statement apart from grace. You see that? You shall not die. God would forgive and restore. God is not done with him. Oh, that the church would get a grasp of God's forgiveness, God's restoration, God's hope for broken people. Satan would often tempt us to despair continually over our sin, accusing us even when we have genuinely confessed it. He wants to accuse us and does accuse us, but we belong to Christ and it's not over for us. Aren't you grateful? Even in great sin... Don't get the idea that forgiveness is like putting a dollar in a vending machine and receiving the pack of M&M's that comes out. At least that's what I would choose. Plain M&M's. I like the plain. I like them all, really. And those, those cocoa mocha or whatever you can, can buy, whew, those are dangerous, very dangerous. I think we might have to stop by the store there and get some of those since I don't have, I think there's one cookie left in the house. That's unacceptable dear just unacceptable but my point is this don't go through our liturgy every sunday make making confession like i'm saying a few words and just boom my sin is forgiven rather i want us to get a sense of the miracle of grace david deserves to die I want us to get a true sense of our wickedness and hopelessness apart from Christ. And I want you to see God really does forgive. God really does cleanse. God really does restore. Don't lose the wonder of grace. It must be a God thing in our heart to cleanse the conscious and make us whole. So let's let's treat it like it is a God thing and marvel in it. And in this miracle of grace, there's a third thing. We had the confession, we have the assurance, we now have the substitute. Did you see that in verse 14? Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, what does it say? The child, who is born to you shall die. The child that is born to you shall die. For David, God's forgiveness is both a miracle And costly. The child would die in his place. David knew he should die. That's why David pours out his heart before the Lord. He knows that should be him. He even said it in the judgment of the rich man. That man deserves to die. But Nathan told David that he would not, the child would die. And David's thinking, no, I should die. And the child dies in his place. I I want you to see the pattern of substitution here. Our forgiveness and cleansing came at a cost, our substitute died. Jesus was our sacrificial lamb. Our sin and shame was placed upon him. I deserve to die. And this is the gospel. I despise the word of the Lord. I didn't want him. I despised him. But God, in grace, sent his son to be my substitute to die in my place. That's the gospel. You see that pattern there. It's no wonder David's heart is wrenching. And that comes to me to my fifth point, and I'm getting close to the end. And I call this the saga of grace continues. The child became critically ill. The text says, Who struck the child? Yahweh struck the child. Now, don't miss the grace in this portion. Because sometimes we receive more grace in our trials than what we do in our triumphs. This section focuses on David, a man clearly in the grip of grace. He's pouring his heart out, he's fasting, he's praying. It's seven days, he won't eat, he's crying out to the Lord. David is clearly a man in the grip of grace. David is falling apart with guilt from sin, grief, and heartache over his son. He lay nights interceding for his son. He turns a deaf ear to the pleas of his servants for him to eat. He intensely scares the servants, and they're afraid to tell him the news. The child's dead. I wonder if David is almost at the point of taking his own life. But David knows something bad has happened. He directs his question, is the child dead? Yes, the child is dead. And When he hears the news, what does it say he did? He got up. He washed and anointed himself. He put on clean clothes. He went to the house of the Lord and he worshiped. He went back to the house and had the chef make his meal and he ate. Then the service, servants question what David has done. You fasted, you cried. Now you're going along like nothing happened. Why not fast and weep after death? And David says, what, what good is that going to do right now? I, he won't come back to me, but I will go to him. So verses 22 to 23 explain David's position. While the child was alive, I wept. And who knows whether the Lord will be gracious to me that the child may live. But what did God say through the prophet, David? Your child would die, and yet David still prays like, who knows? God might be gracious to keep him alive. David thought that God's sentence of death for the child might not be his last word. Perhaps there was yet grace for the child. See, I think David knows God better than we often do. Because David knows God is a God of grace, and grace is his forte. And even with the sentence of death, David is still praying for grace. David understands that God is gracious even in our messes. Grace is real. It's not just a doctrinal concept. Grace is real. Now, in this case, God did not answer David's plea for the child. But but that does not negate the rightness of what David knows about God. David does not merely have a grip on grace. Grace has gripped him. Grace is holding him so tight he might not even realize it, but it is. And then we see that God gives David another son. Is that not interesting? And the Lord loved this son. His name was Solomon. And the Lord sent a message through the prophet to David. Call him Jedediah. loved by the Lord. That is grace. I pray this truth encourages you as you deal with sin in your own heart. Grace really is greater than all our sin. Where sin abounded, grace much more abounded. A text like this helps you move beyond excuses for your sin to see that God takes it seriously, yet grants such grace to his child that they can live each day in hope. There is a future and a hope for us. Sinner that I am, I don't understand it. I know what I deserve, but there is a future and a hope. Now, as we conclude, let's not forget the Ammonites. Did you see that little section at the end about the Ammonite War? Remember, the backdrop of both chapters 11 and 12 was the Ammonite War. David was supposed to be at war. And where was he? He was at home. He sees Bathsheba. Then we have the whole story of what we've just talked about. Now at the end here of chapter 12, who goes out to lead the charge? Who gathers the people to bring the victory? It's David. Do you see that? He's doing now what he's supposed to be doing. God has restored him, and David brings them down, the Ammonites, and he subjugates them. And then they all go home, and then the story's over. It almost seems anticlimactic. When we were reading the text uh, before I started, and, and we're reading about this story and the confrontation and all that, and then you come to the Ammonites, you say, that is just so anticlimactic, isn't it? Why would he put that in there? I think, I think there's a reason for it, and I think it's this. Obedience to God is of more importance or more weight than the Ammonite battle. David's obedience or disobedience and, and this lesson on God's grace is more important than that little battle thing, the Ammonite thing. The conflict with Ammon was won, but the real battle in God's servant was lost initially, wasn't it? The the battle in David was lost, at least until he confessed his sin and found forgiveness. So I want to give you this quote from Robert Murray McShane. And, And this is how I want you to pray for me as pastor. Here's what McShane said. My people's greatest need is my personal holiness. And that causes me to tremble. My people's greatest need is my holiness of heart and life. That's what you need more than anything else from me. David's failure highlights an important theme throughout 1 and 2 Samuel from Eli and his sons to Saul. Now David, so many failures, so many flaws, yet it points us forward to Christ the greater David, the king of grace. And that's the real message here. Do you know the king of grace? Do you know his marvelous grace? It's not just a doctrinal concept, it's real. Now, we should not continue in our sin that grace might increase. God forbid. That should never be our attitude. But God's grace is marvelous. God's grace exceeds our sin and our guilt. And We're going to sing a closing song in a moment after I pray called, Not in Me. I want this song to be an encouragement to you. My only hope of righteousness is not in me, but it's in Him. And aren't you thankful He takes sinners like us, restores us, makes us new. We know what our sins deserve. I don't have to tell you. You know that. My God is merciful to me and merciful in Christ alone. My righteousness is Jesus' life. My debt was paid by Jesus' death. My weary load was borne by Him, and He alone can give me rest. And that's what I desire for us today, is to have his rest in peace as we marvel in his grace. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you for your grace. It's amazing and marvelous, and no word can even describe how wonderful it is. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for giving us hope today. Thank you for not throwing us away, treating us as our sins deserve. Thank you for mercy. Lord, as we sing this closing song, I pray that that this truth would just penetrate this message into our hearts today. And we would always be thankful for your grace. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.